Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So did you see, guys, that in response to that ridiculous Skittles tweet about refugees from Donald Trump Jr., that the Mars company actually had to come out with a statement saying, Skittles are candy. Refugees are people. We think it's an inappropriate analogy. So glad they clarified that. <laughs> if you, Plus, if you're going to be a type of candy, a Skittle? Eh. I'm not a fan of Skittles. Not it would either. not be the, if, if you were a candy, what candy would you be, Shane? I think I would be, you know, dark chocolate. It's my favorite thing. But if I had to go with like an actual candy candy, um, you know, I've always been preferential to the Snickers bar. I was going to say Snickers. See, this is why I think we get along so well, because yeah. I think of myself as dark chocolate also. I think yeah. I would be like a Milky Way midnight bar. Ooh, the midnight bar. Yeah. See, little what caramel, I think of us, milk, dark our sort chocolate. of our rational security identity is the Snickers, because the Snickers, it's almost a food group. I mean, you can have it for lunch, and that's like, that's a legit adult Many, decision. many days yeah. I have had it for lunch. Although if Donald Trump Jr. were eating me as a candy, I'd be going to be Pop Rocks and just taken by surprise. Bam! <laughs> and that big mouth of his hello and welcome to rational security the what candy are you edition i'm shane harris of the daily beast whispering sweet sweet candy nothings into this microphone oh boy i should have been a dj you are on fire today i am on Mr. fire harris. today look out it's only noon <laughs> on wednesday at 12 45 it's amazing what a scotch in the morning will do for it you. sure is you know you blend it with bananas and it just tastes like a regular old smoothie it's a complete breakfast the good thing is the neighbors don't know what you're doing <laughs> No, it's a little too early for scotch today. Also, Ben's not here today, so I there's know. no one to pour the scotch. It's so where is, sad. Where is your husband? Ben's in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Woo! You know, this... we need a college fund for the kids. So oh, I see. Oh, this went. is the plan. Okay, good. Yeah, it's good to have a plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's good. He's 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 hot on the blackjack tables, right? I told him it's only embezzlement <clears throat> if he loses lawfare's money <laughs> as a technical matter. Actually, casinos play into my object lesson, which I'm going to talk about later, um, as does uh, money laundering, which is sort of like embezzlement. So, yeah. Wow. So right. stay tuned for that. Uh, this week on the show, it's been a big news week, of course. Um, bombings in New York and New Jersey have fixed us again on the threat of lone wolf terrorists. Have back-to-back -back summits on refugees brought us any closer to solving a humanitarian crisis? And the Washington Post comes out against a pardon for Edward Snowden. We're going to talk about that. You mean the Washington Post editorial board agrees with us? Well, I think that they probably were listening last week. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. yeah. There you go. Mm -hmm. And thought that what you all had to say on Instant that was impact very enlightening. Here. Yeah, totally. Um, let's start with the big news, of course. Uh, bombings in the Chelsea neighborhood slash village neighborhood debatable, you know, roundabout lower Manhattan area. It's not really lower Manhattan. But bombings in New York uh, in New Jersey. Uh, the suspect in those cases, uh, Ahmed Rahami, has been... Uh, apprehended after a shootout with police in New Jersey on Tuesday. Um, as of this point, it appears that he acted alone, although the FBI put out a bulletin Wednesday afternoon that they're seeking two individuals um, for questioning uh, uh, possibly connected to, the, to these events. Um, uh, thankfully, these bombs did not kill anyone. The injuries appear to be very minor. Uh, the bomb in New Jersey, it sounds like, went off before the race began because there were some delays due to a law enforcement action, I think, up there. And then, of course, the other bomb that he, uh, the pressure cooker in Manhattan, he put underneath a dumpster, <clears throat> which just goes to show that it's not that difficult to build a pressure cooker bomb. But apparently you also have to have to power to place one. Uh, so the uh, it could be that, uh, well, we don't know yet exactly why he decided to put it underneath uh, the dumpster, but that appears to have saved um, many people. Um, so I mean, I'm curious. I want to get you guys' take on on the, the first, you know, on this. But one one thing I found as a reporter, I'll just say, covering this event for the past 48 hours, and I think it speaks to what happens when all of these events go on. Is there's there's 
an incredible frustration sort of like picking for scraps of the narrative and like sort of constantly trying to make sense of what happened and, you know, who screwed up and who dropped the ball and where did it go wrong? Um, and it's just, for me, it's been very frustrating in that the story you come up with is ordinary guy. He was so quiet. Yeah. He was acting a little funny. He'd been traveling to the middle East a little bit. His father seemed upset with him. The police came, they interviewed him, but then they went away. I mean, it seems like this sort of pattern of repetition, very much similar to what happened in the Omar Mateen case in Orlando, where there in hindsight are lots of little moments that make you wonder, maybe somebody should have looked closer. Maybe that was a warning sign, but I just worry that in hindsight, we're making those into bigger flags than they actually are. And sort of, deluding ourselves into thinking that you can actually stop these kinds of attacks. Well, I I wonder, too, whether there isn't more focus than is rational or realistic on trying to identify individuals and stop them before they plan or bring their plans to fruition, and less attention than is deserved and important on how you uncover and halt attacks in other ways that don't involve finding that needle in the haystack of a person. Um, because if you look at what happened here, th- this guy left uh, luggage, you know, duffel bags or whatever around one in New York that was very quickly discovered and one in New Jersey that was very quickly discovered. Because in New York and New Jersey, I guess if you leave luggage lying around, somebody's going to think that People maybe... People see something and they say something. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, for whatever reasons. Um, but I, it seems to me that it's worth focusing on that a little bit because things could have been so much worse. Um, but for those actions and law enforcement's swift reaction... So I feel like, you know, we spend so much time kicking ourselves over why dots weren't connected about an individual. Individuals are complex, and we have hundreds of millions of them in this country. And so if we're really going to be good at prevention, we can't just rely on identifying individuals. So I agree that sort of the um, the like singular obsession with identifying individuals or, or preventing attacks is just not realistic. Um, but like the Omar Martin case in Florida, I do think this sort of um, it's an opportunity to rethink think um, about sort of the uh, the FBI's general tactics and particularly their use of sting operations. Mm-hmm. Um, so reportedly, um, uh, Rahami is that how you yeah, say Rahami, it? Yeah, Rahami's father. Um, uh, reported him to the FBI in 2014 um, as sort of p- potentially posing a terrorist threat or um, or having some type of connection um, to terrorism, uh, and then recanted. Um, this is after also Rami was arrested for stabbing his brother. Right. So you have an individual who um, obviously has demonstrated a propensity for violence, um, and then you have sort of the additional information, although later recanted, of, of um, potential radicalization ties. Um you know, the FBI takes a lot of heat um, for the notion of that they run a lot of sting operations and a lot of people they prosecute aren't real terrorists. They're sort of they're idiot kids that got tricked by the FBI and sort of been uh, even if they they were inclined to do these things would never have actually, you know, uh, actually done it or, or had been able to they would never have been able to access the the materials or travel to where they thought they were traveling. And that this is all sort of um, it's like uh, the whole um the whole sort of law enforcement area that's a that's a fictional creation, um, you know, and I actually um, sort of buy that criticism, right? There, there's a lot of people that end up being prosecuted for very long, um, you know, with very long jail sentences, where you sort of look at them and say, "Really, I don't, I don't know." I'm it not feels sure like that... entrapment, right? exactly. Yeah. It, it feels like quasi entrapment. Now, whenever you look sort of after the fact at, at Omar Martin or or, um, or in this case here, and you see sort of well, um, you know, the FBI has lots of people that sort of you know get put on their radar screen, and then they have to figure out who is the genuine threat and who isn't um, and sort of providing people with opportunities to mm-hmm. uh, to commit crimes or not commit crimes, um, you know, uh, tracking people for suspicious travel. Um, you know, it's sort of it's hard to um, to really articulate a, a better way to go about it. And so uh, at least for me, these sort of those these most recent cases ha- have caused me to kind of rethink about uh, that particular strain of criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me it makes me think like, I mean, OK, so. We know from previous reporting that the FBI has talked lots of people who in hindsight just look like they were not probably on the verge of becoming a terrorist or, or a lone wolf into doing things that they wouldn't have done. So you know, why not, though, in a case like Ahmed Rahami, where he had gone, made several trips overseas, his own father was saying, you know, I think he's a terrorist. Now, maybe he was speaking 
figuratively in that moment. But like, let's say he's, let's say, take him literally, he just stabbed his brother. Uh, if they poked around a little bit with his friends, they probably would have heard what we're hearing now, which is, yeah, he's been behaving, behaving really strangely since he came back. I mean, if the FBI is going to be in the business of trying to trick people into setting off fake bombs to arrest them, he seems like the perfect candidate for that. But you know? so go after but all, him. That, all that stuff, I think, is more visible post facto <clears throat> than it is at, in the moment when, you know, if you're a field agent and you're looking across your caseload and you might have several dozen people right. who share a lot of those categories. <clears throat> I, you know, so I can see the point you're making, Susan, I guess. I think we we often look at the ones that we know, um, you know, carried out or attempted to carry out terrorist actions, and we can find all kinds of correlations after the fact. And the interesting question is, in the experience of the FBI, which mounts every day, which correlations end up being relevant and which do not? And one of the ones that I think questions were raised after the Mateen case, and, you know, this guy raises them again, is, is there a, a relevant, a meaningful correlation with other forms of violence? You know, in the Mateen case, domestic abuse. In this case, he stabbed his brother. You know, is the FBI focused too much on the substance or the content of motivation and intention and not enough on whether people are unbalanced and prone to violence and therefore vulnerable to being ideologized. Right. And, and something about sort of the, the way we think about terrorism and, and the lens we apply to law enforcement sort of overly fo focuses on religiosity and, and other um, uh, sort of uh, proxies that, uh, you know, would be interesting to know kind of uh, if there's any statistical evidence behind this of sort of um, uh, how much is um, uh, ideological uh, inclination, uh, uh, demonstration of, of capacity to commit a violent act versus, um, you know, somebody who shows themselves that they're capable of hurting other people, potentially lack empathy, right? Those other kinds of um, uh you know, basic uh, you know, manifestations right. of, you know, vulnerability to yeah. criminal behavior. Right. Yeah. So there's another element to, to this particular case that we should talk about because it's it's factoring already into the presidential race. Uh, so Omar, no more Mateen, sorry, uh, um, Ahmed Rahami came here in 1995 to the United States as the child of an asylum seeker, in this case, uh, his father, uh, uh, who came here from Afghanistan. Uh, we don't know a lot about the details around it. I mean, to be an asylum seeker, you have to essentially claim that you are part of a persecuted group of people or class in your home country and that there's a reasonable basis to suspect that if you were sent back, you could be killed uh, or face torture or imprisonment, these kinds of uh, you know, outcomes. Um, so he was allowed to stay. Uh, Rahami became a naturalized citizen. Um, of course, this then gets picked up. Donald Trump talked about this, saying it's sort of, I think, drawing parallels between this and the debate over Syrian refugees. And we can't let these people into the country because ISIS will infiltrate their ranks. Um, let's talk about this a little bit. I mean, obviously, as you said at the outset, we're talking about someone who came over when he was a child. Uh, and by all accounts, uh, there, there's nothing in the father's background that we've seen so far that would have said he was prone to radicalism or anything like this. Um, but it's raised again this question about refugees uh, and keeping them out because they might one day perhaps turn into violent offenders or someone might be in their ranks. What do you think tomorrow? Yeah, look, I mean, Susan was talking earlier about the value of statistical analysis in these cases. And I, you know, I would say it would be such... I, I am not a fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson's rationalia proposal, mm. but I do think that there is a place for social science in uh, evaluating public policy. And um, and the idea that, you know, uh, that because now I think three refugee-affiliated uh, individuals have been, um, have been found to try and carry out terrorist acts, acts in the United States that therefore our entire refugee policy should change is very poor policy from a social science perspective. Um, and uh, and in addition, you know, it, it saying that sort of uh, broad brush response takes away from looking at whether there are relevant things about which refugees we take, how we evaluate them, and mo most importantly, how we integrate them. Maybe there are lessons we could learn 
Um, because I think that among those who advocate for refugee acceptance, um, there's an assumption that uh, bringing especially kids in as refugees and raising them in our society somehow inoculates them against um, the sorts of thinking that could generate intolerance or bigotry or violence because we're America and we're the melting pot. And I think that assumption is challenged mm -hmm. by this case. And so it leads me to ask whether there's more we need to do in a proactive way with respect to integrating refugees and really inculcating the civic values that we say uh, define our society. Right. Although I, I do worry that that becomes um, sort of reactionary and disproportionate to the threat. Like, like in some ways, it um, even though it's trying to have a positive response to, frankly, what I think is um, uh, a strain of criticism that is ultimately motivated by racism. And, and we can talk a little bit about that um, later whenever we talk about the, the UN uh, summit. Um, uh, and that's sort of... Um, uh, this is an aberration, right? It's it's you know one in a billion people, or I'm you know their numbers have been going around. Um, I, you know I can't bring them directly to mind, but it's sort of it's these astronomical odds. Um, there actually isn't evidence that um, you know refugees are not being integrated and then uh, you know are committing violent acts. Um, so one thing that I think is sort of um, is interesting and it's a little bit been been buried by the headlines is um, is the separate uh, mall attack in in Saint Cloud, Minnesota. Um, so uh, that individual uh, is not a refugee but is a member of, um, of the Somali community um, and sort of the um the immediate suspicion about well is it is it ISIS related is it ISIS affiliate and, and you know ISIS uh, um, uh, allegedly claim credit it, claimed yeah. credit for it right um, but sort of but that initial instinct even though it um, it appears to be a workplace attack the individual um, was uh, employed by a security service at the mall um, sort of that um, uh, it's almost feeds into the same conversation of, um, uh, you know, refugees or, or Muslims being being a threat to the United States and, and a totally distinct type of threat um, without uh, sort of separating out the difference between refugees and people who are born in this country, uh, you know, let sure. alone sort of the um, the nuance of the difference between asylees and refugees, right? The Well, and I, th I think you're also pointing out, Susan, that there's really unfortunate bleed over between the worst aspects of our public conversation about people who are different from the mainstream, meaning non-white or, you know, not born here. Um, and, you know, the way that that nasty, ugly dimension of our national conversation has bled over into media coverage of these kinds of events that that assumption pops up in the media and gets discussed in the media because it is part of the national conversation already in the context of the presidential race. I just find that really unfortunate. And it 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 reinforces to me that some of the bigotry that we've seen emerge in the political campaign, you know, has generated a downward cycle, like this sort of cyclical descent into um, ugliness and, and division that makes me really sad. <laughs> well, let's let's pivot off that to the next thing we want to talk about, which is we've got the UN General Assembly this week and there was a White House summit on refugees. So, I mean, what are our leaders talking about uh, doing about this 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 crisis and this plight when they get together in these fora and is it is it really making a difference? I mean, just look at what's happening in Syria. Uh, it's, it just seems like deprivation on a an unimaginable scale to me, but like, well, and not just save us deprivation, <laughs> but violence. And, yeah. you know, I think that both the UN refugee summit uh, and the White House's refugee summit, which were convened on um, successive days up in New York around the UN General Assembly with all these world leaders in attendance, they were both efforts to try and reset the conversation around refugees to separate the challenge of refugee relief and rescue from these broader debates about immigration or about race. And there were some incredibly powerful uh, statements and speeches. Um, I would point to a couple. One, the the, the president's intervention, uh, his UNGA speech um, to the General Assembly, but also his engagement at the Refugee Summit, I think was addressed as much to an American audience as to the international audience, talking about how self-defeating it is to isolate yourself from the world, to put up walls, to 
separate, try and separate yourself from people who are different from you, that diversity is a source of strength. It's a source of growth. It's a source of success in this 21st century globalized world. So he was making that argument to North Korea, but I think it was very clear he was also making it to the American voter. Another one I, I really think um, needs to be highlighted, and it's five minutes, watch it on YouTube, it's unbelievable, was the speech by uh, Zaid al-Hussein, who is a member of the Jordanian royal family, but um, more importantly, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and who spoke at the Refugee Summit with just a blistering uh, condemnation of the stream of intolerance that we see in a number of countries uh, about those who are different uh, and the way it's degrading politics and the way it therefore creates an environment in which the sort of violence that we see in Syria, the, the level of death and destruction and the way these people are consigned to misery, crossing oceans and drowning in squalid camps, um, not being accepted uh, into the societies where they flee for refuge, you know, that, that, those things are allowed to happen because of uh, the debasement of our societies by bigotry. It's just a very powerful address from someone who is, I, I think, coming to the end of his term as uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, but despite coming from an Arab monarchy, has spoken with incredible passion and principle about this issue throughout his term. I mean, this is one of those rare sort of um, policy questions where – you know, the fundamental sort of uh, problem here is how do you get people to be compassionate, right, to be able to empathize with other human beings? Um, and uh, the inhibitions in the ability to do that, um, a little bit, it's sort of, it's depressing about kind of the state of the world and, and certainly the state of the United States. I mean, we sort of, we jokingly referenced this, squiddle, this Skittles tweet um, from mm -hmm. Donald Trump Jr. That I'm sure everyone's seen it, but it's a bowl of Skittles. It says, you know, if I offered you a bowl of Skittles and, and three were poison, would you take a handful? Um, you know, of course, uh, that's our Syrian refugee problem. Um, there are a lot of uh, I, I don't want to eat Syrian refugees, just for the record. <laughs> um, also, I don't like Skittles. I'm just going to say it. Right. Look, there, there's a lot of sort of uh, problematic racism in yeah. uh, in the image. In, in um, the fact that you don't like Skittles. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> well, not, actually, not the least of which the, the sure. choice of Skittles itself, which is actually um, the original analogy, which is uh, offered by the Nazis, um, was uh, M&Ms, or, or that's, yeah. that's where it sort of ultimately um, uh sort of rested and then actually the use of Skittles as a direct reference to sort of an alt-right um, meme uh, uh, referencing Trevon Martin, who of course was killed by by George Zimmerman while buying Skittles. Um, so really, I mean, it's it's a perverse thing. It's a perverse thing for um, uh, somebody who is a surrogate, not, not to mention, you know, the son uh, of the Republican presidential nominee. Um, you know, but there really is, there, there's sort of, there, there's that, there's that moment where, um <clears throat> You look at it and you think, um, what's the difference between my reaction and this person's reaction, right? Are they, are they evil? Are they, you know, do they, do they hate other people? Um, you know, I think you, um, you hope that the explanation is that people's, um, fear is overwhelming their ability to be compassionate, um, or that they aren't being presented with images that, that connect them at all to the humanity of other okay, people. Okay. So I think you're right. That's the premise of these international gatherings is that they can override the fear impulse with images of suffering that generate compassion and also with the sort of collective moral voice of the international community. Mm. <laughs> Not so sure about that one, but, um, you know, to sort of say, well, we're all here committed to doing the right thing. Won't you join us? So we, I think that that is why these summits are gathered. Um, but the question is whether they really have much impact on precisely the people who might be um, most driven by fear or uh, or cold heartedness. Yeah, that was my question too. Is I mean, these <clears throat> if ultimately what President Obama was also trying to do in those speeches was sort of aim something at the American electorate and indirectly say, and Donald Trump is the one who's telling you build walls. Um, I don't know how you overcome that fear. And it makes me think, too, how does this terrorist attack in New York and New Jersey, like not to be sort of break it down to the 
crass calculus, but who does it benefit? I mean, does it benefit Trump because he can come and say, look, I warned you. And I think he actually has come out recently and said, I was, people said I was one of the first ones to ever warn about terrorism. So no. it's great. He's a clairvoyant and running for president. Or does it help Hillary Clinton because, you know, it makes him be seen as um, irrational and unstable and like he has stupid responses to this or opportunistic. Um, I don't know. I got, I got to figure that if you're already sort of in the camp that <clears throat> you agree with the Skittles tweet, Right. And like, yes, that's exactly how we should see the problem. You're probably already, you know, on yeah, board but, with him. OK, fine. But agreeing with the Skittles tweet is not the same thing as being afraid. Right. And therefore being kind of open to the implication yeah. of the Skittles tweet. I think those are really two different categories True. of people. And one of the reasons why Hillary Clinton got in trouble a couple of weeks ago on the campaign trail is that she seemed to suggest that, you know, those two groups of people were the same. Um, or maybe that they represented the majority of people who were supporting Trump. And um, and I think it's a little more complicated than that. But, you know, if every election is to some extent a choice between fear and hope, it's not clear to me in this case who which of the two candidates are benefited by fear. Um, it is clear to me which of the two candidates are benefited by hope, but it's also clear to me that hope is not winning a lot of adherence this time around. Right. And I wonder um, if there is an opportunity to be a little bit more um, uh, candid about sort of the historical examples here, right? So um, uh, we are approaching levels of, of loss of life that um, are, are starting to rival those of the Holocaust, which is sort of um, the American touchstone of um, never again and, and international responsibility. You mean in Syria? In Syria, yes. Okay. Um, um, so sort of, uh, uh, right, so this is, um, uh, you know, learning about the Holocaust in, in sort of those compassionate terms, um, uh, you know, uh, learning that Albert Einstein was a refugee, right, all of these things. That's actually part of the um, the American education system. It's something that we're all taught from a very young age. Um, and if maybe sort of... Um, uh, the ability to tie uh, to to connect to people who who are not racist but are are overwhelmed by fear or, or um, are are concerned and feel like sort of political correctness is um, uh, uh, inhibiting their ability to sort of express their their genuine fear however however they want to put it um, to sort of um, put the the case to them that this this isn't just about being nice to other people or sort of it, this is about um, what it means as a society um, you know that we are not just what we do but what we tolerate and this like you know this really is sort of a fundamental expression of what this country is um, of who you are as a person um, I, I just it's um, it's shocking to me that it's been um, it's been this challenging. Um, I, I, I'm, it, is, it is a hard case to make right now in the United States. I guess, you know, what I'm surprised by is that, you know, we're a big country. We have oceans on either side, so we can feel very distant from this stuff. But the other countries who have been part of um, the civil war in Syria and who have been dealing with the consequences of the civil war are not so well positioned. They, you know, they're all cheek by jowl with this problem. And so it, I, I've been surprised at how difficult it is to make that case to people who are being directly affected by the ripple effects and the human misery caused by this ongoing conflict. But, you know, maybe what we really need are some celebrities oh yeah right to really yeah that's what'll get you motivated that's that's what will overcome the fear factor and get people excited to join the team of refugee relief honestly i mean i like you're being a little bit glib maybe um but like the um uh I am grateful, even if these summits don't actually accomplish anything, even if these sort of celebrity campaigns don't accomplish anything, I'm grateful that they exist, that like there is at least some attempt, some <laughs> ongoing effort to sort of There to are talk good about people in the world. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's, just, maybe it's just cold, empty comfort for me of like, well, you know, at least there's still some goodness out there because it feels like if, um, if these conversations stop happening, if the president stops making the lofty speeches before the UN... Um, that we're conceding something, like we're conceding that that's a conversation that we should be having and instead engaging on, on this much uglier one of, of countering, um, you know, really sort of hateful stuff. Yeah, well, one could also wish that President Obama implemented his own understanding as articulated in those beautiful words more consistently than I think he has. Were you referring to Angelina Jolie when you said celebrities? 
Well, she is very well we known have, as a refugee. <clears throat> we just need to have supporter. a moment before we move on. Yeah. Okay. For the Brangelina. You know, <laughs> are are you in mourning? A little bit. Well, I mean, mourning for her because she's no longer going to live with that amazing hot man. But you know, I'm actually I think he's better off on his own. Okay, but that was her third marriage, right? Yeah, and also he was always better off with Jennifer. Just saying. You know what? Thank you. I agree completely. I have always been a Jennifer Aniston partisan in this. Yeah. I have. I mean, I, look, if I had to pick a team, I would be team Jen. But I have to say, I don't find any of them and any of the three of them particularly appealing. Of the three women he's been with? Like of Brad Pitt, <laughs> Angelina Jolie, Oh, I thought we like throwing Aniston. Gwyneth under the bus now, too. <laughs> oh, she's a whole other issue. She's a whole other um, mess. Yeah, I just... Uh, I don't get it, um, but I will admit that I was on the train yesterday and I was doing all this work, um, and then I was like trying to like check like you know Us magazine to like read about the stories like without letting my seatmates see you know anytime I was like oh, on the New York Times like, I'd be like letting yeah you know I just felt like sort of silly like oh what's this mm-hmm. like reading Fifty Shades on the subway. Which I have not read. But. <laughs> well, I hope that her divorce from Brad Pitt uh, will not deter Angelina Jolie from being outspoken about refugee policy because she's actually been, I think, a pretty sophisticated and good advocate for that. So. Absolutely. And she has the star power to yeah. maybe bring some Use more it. people on side. So. Yeah, for real. Use it. Um, okay. Look, we're going to get our last item here for the week. So the Washington Post editorial page had some very nasty things to say about the Washington Post News Division's favorite source, Edward Snowden. They did indeed. Um, so it's too bad that Ben is off um, gambling away the uh, Wittis family fortune on the blackjack tables. Um, he would have because, some choice words on this exactly, subject. Exactly. And I think he's actually is going to be um, publishing something on this soon. Um, of course, Ben um, was formerly employed by the Washington Post defrocked. editorial page, um, his defrocked journalism role. Um, so the, the editorial page essentially said um, they didn't think Edward Snowden should be pardoned. They thought he should stand trial. So that's sort of separate. Or get a plea deal. Uh, no, or they, strike a plea deal, right? No, they did say that they thought the best um, the best result would be that if he uh, he reached a plea deal with the government. Um, so uh, you know, so it, it's not quite the same as um, like the aghast, like you were you were, uh, you're sending your sources to jail or sort of advocating for sending your sources to jail. Um, you know, I think what's really interesting about all of this is kind of um, the questions about. Uh, one, the the difference between editorial pages and newsrooms and sort of what that wall looks like and, and if it's a good thing or a bad thing and um, and what the real strain of criticism is here. Um, uh, and two, I think it sort of raises some broader questions. I'll be interested to hear your guys' thoughts on it about, um, you know, look, mass leaks are going to become more common um, because the opportunity is going to be uh, more present in all kinds of different contexts. And um, leaks are going to have all kinds of different motivations. Um, and so uh, I think a little bit we might have to, to rethink or, or at least um, maybe start to think about what are the journalistic ethics surrounding reporting on leaked information, um, you know, reporting on uh, leaked classified information, sort of, uh, uh, it does seem as though this editorial is highlighting um, a little bit of a difference of opinion um, in terms of whether or not uh, the Washington Post acted responsibly. Yeah, and I think if Ben were here, I mean, he would probably be able to reveal things about the internal makeup and dynamics of the Washington Post editorial board. I don't know if, if those editorials are, I don't know who wrote this one in particular, if they vote on them or what. I can't imagine that it reflects a unanimous point of view of the Washington Post editorial board, right? I mean, I, 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 mean, I don't know. I, but even if I, it did, is it problematic for you that it's, it's, it's... No, so it's actually not. I mean, so, I mean, I had a lot of friends and even colleagues this week saying, like, well, this is outrageous. Like, the Washington Post is turning, is stabbing it, you know... Uh, uh, source in the back or biting the hand that fed it insofar as, you know, Edward Snowden did give Barton Gelman um, of the Washington Post access to these, this database of, of classified documents. I mean, I can separate the editorial division from the news division, you know, just fine. And I mean, friends of mine who work at the Washington Post know it's a separate Well, and if you couldn't, that would actually be a problem for the ability of the editorial board to write things that are relevant. I mean, if they if they had to take into account the news side's interests and everything, then you would discount their editorials as a result. 
Of course. Right, or even worse, if the news side was expected to account for the views of the editorial page. So right. If the editorial page did object as it was happening, yeah. um, which is sort of um, what Glenn Greenwald and others have, have alleged. You know, if you didn't agree with this, if you thought this was um, this was wrong at the time and causing harm, then you should take ir- um, institutional responsibility um, for reporting on this stuff, which it strikes me as like a little bit silly. Um, you know, the, in instances in which the editorial page disagrees with the judgment of the newsroom, I, I would hope that the newsroom could still report on sure. things sort of, uh, right. you know, that well, they but the, but the broader journalistic ethics question you raise, I think, is a really interesting one because you're right that these sorts of mass leaks are likely going to be more frequent because just because of the way information is stored and, and collected now, um, there's just more, op- you know, more targets. But, um, but what was odd or unusual about this leak is that it wasn't a leak to the public. It was a leak to very selected um, news organizations and individuals, and they had to, in order to have access to the to the leaked information, abide by certain agreements. And to me, that's what really compromises the thing. So I think this is this is the more interesting question, and it really, um, uh, if the ed- editorial page was going to weigh in on the ethics of the reporting around um, the Snowden leaks, um, I would love to hear their opinion on this. And that's that um, my understanding, um, which I believe is uh, uh, the common understanding, um, is that essentially uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Portress had sort of a, a trove of documents. Um, everybody who was involved was well aware that this was a highly significant story, that there was a Pulitzer in those documents, um, and that they were not given all of the documents at once, right? Um, They were given documents, they reported, and then they came back, but that access was controlled, right? Um, And so, you know, without sort of maligning, you know, the the character of people, you could see um, how that would have some really strange incentives whenever you are, uh, your continued access to information of significant consequence to your career um, depends on currying favor with a group of people who have a very strong ideological um, advocacy interest in it. Um, and I think that if you look at the reporting that was done, for example, reporting um, surrounding uh, reports of NSA compliance incidents that essentially claimed to – the headlines said the opposite thing of what the document said, um, right? I mean, it really was a case of bad reporting that, that needed to be corrected. And um, whenever you look at how those incentives might have played out, I think there's a real question about whether or not the standard moving forward for a journalist that is interacting with this kind of leak is to say, look, if you give me all the documents such that I am not beholden to you moving forward and I can make an independent assessment, then I will use these documents. And maybe the source is good or bad, but I'm going to use my, my judgment here. But this like trickle out sort of thing, um, that's not going to work because because it's the, the sort of the, um, the, the bias or, or perversion of the presentation of facts is too problematic. Well, but isn't that – I mean, the the dilemma that you're describing for the journalist seems to me replicated in every journalist source relationship, right, Shane? This is a difference of degree, not well, necessarily of kind. Mm, I don't know. So here, so, so here are two kind of just big offerings I have on this. And these, these are things that have bothered me for a long time and actually – haven't talked about them very much, but I think we're sort of having a moment where it's time to start kind of laying cards Lay down on, on the, the couch, table. Shane. Tell us yeah. how you're feeling. So, I mean, I, I think that the initial coverage, and I and I would put myself, frankly, in this category, was driven by a, a well, not entirely in this category, I'm guilty of it a few times maybe, of <clears throat> looking at the documents and presuming immediately that they indicated X, Y, and Z and sort of taking the documents at face value and and not being more skeptical both about the information that we were seeing in documents, which was essentially PowerPoints, many of them, and not really being skeptical about the source. And I'm not meaning to malign Edward Snowden in that context, but generally when a source comes to you, you do question why he's coming to you. You do question what he's telling you, and you don't just take it at face value. You go out and you report it, and you thoroughly vet it, vet it and, and you do a, a reporting job that it's not entirely clear to me was really done on these documents by several journalists in these early stories. So that's, that's, I've always had a lot of misgivings that there was kind of this rush to report on them and that people kind of did want to see it one way. And frankly, we saw in some of the early reporting, like on the prison program, there are factual errors in that Significant story. Significant factual errors that they should have known ahead of time. I there mean, are. These are and not the, and this, that and I think this has, been, this has been something that's, that's long kind of bothered me and that if you, as a reporter on these issues, 
tried to be more skeptical about the reporting or, and I found this too, or you tried to write stories that were more balanced and tried to maybe take into account what the NSA's position was on it. I mean, there was, you know, not to exaggerate it, but there was a little bit of the social media pitchforks came out for mm -hmm, you. Mm -hmm. And there was a real sense in the beginning that there was one way to view this story and that it was that it affirms every single thing we've always known about what is terrible about the government. I and think that's still there, though. It's I still think... there. And, and yeah, it surely is. And, and believe me, for as somebody who was reporting on this stuff long before Edward Snowden decided to go work for Booz Allen in Hawaii, many of these documents absolutely affirmed things that I had been writing about and that were very critical. But that sort of like rush that we all got caught in bothered me. And the second thing was the extent to which the documents this, that the source gave them started becoming this thing that seemed to be being bartered. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to be or that there were... sold. Well, that's... money. You know? According to public accusations. <laughs> according to... That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that, look, you know, you're a freelancer and... You have to get paid for stories you work on. Look, there's, and if that story happens to be the transfer of a stolen classified document, then so be it. Well, you're the lawyer, so but I'm just going to say that. <laughs> yes, it, I am. Shane. What I is, am the lawyer. <laughs> what is weird about this case to me? It was always weird about it, and this was presented to I think as as a challenge with Julian Assange and the WikiLeaks documents when he went to the New York Times and struck up an arrangement. Is that you go from source provides reporter to do documents to reporter to an arrangement of source gives documents to reporters who then share with other reporters, some but not all, under certain circumstances and conditions. And, you know, I have some firsthand knowledge of this. And basically all these sub-deals. And, like, it's like you're subletting the documents. And, and that's I'm not saying that that is absolutely wrong or right. I just always found it weird, challenging, and we did not, as an industry, I think, have a sufficient conversation on how to ethically handle that. Do you think you need to have one yes. moving forward? Yes, because it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again that somebody gets access to a trove of documents, and then they're going to say, I am willing to partner with other organizations. Now, in one lens, that may look like freelancing, like... If Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald have documents and they want to strike out on their own and say, I am willing to write a story for the New York Times about the information that I have access to, that's pretty straightforward. It looks very traditional. Mm -hmm. We're used to that. That's reporters with access to a source. But when the source material starts to become the subject of negotiations and when the source material is the thing on which we are relying so heavily – so much of these early stories were driven by people reading documents and reporting what was in documents. And in some cases, as you're alluding to in other stories like about compliance, I think not really, you know, the NSA would argue not listening to what we're telling you is the counter narrative. Now reporters have to make up their mind about whether they're being spun. But there's no denying that in the beginning, the documents kind of had this sort of, you know, you know, Bible like authority. And I and I worry that we were frankly kind of snookered by a few of those documents as well okay so here's my question you know traditional established media organizations can play a little bit of a referee or a guardian role here to the extent that they have good ethical standards and procedures in place and you guys are challenging whether we do for cases like this but i wonder whether even since the snowden revelations came out the information environment has changed such that the next wave of these kinds of disclosures won't end up in select high-end newspapers with wide circulation. They won't go to the New York Times. Uh, the, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras will put them on Medium. They'll write their own story. It'll go up. It'll go viral. And, you know, the... the and crowdsource it. And they'll, yeah. And so the traditional role of organizations like the Washington Post and the New York Times of both granting credibility to a story by hosting it on their newspaper, but also invoking and imposing and implementing all of the journalistic standards that accompany their sterling brand, that's less and less relevant to the media environment now. Well, and this is a, a particularly important in the context of national security reporting, um, especially the sort of the relationship between the American press and, and the U.S. national security community and that there are um, rules and some people sort of, um, or, or very strong norms um, that include um, notifying an agency, for example, uh, you know, of a breaking story, giving them an opportunity um, to comment and then also um, uh, allowing the agency to make a request, either that names or particular information 
information be redacted, or in some cases that a hold be placed on information so that uh, you know assets can be moved. Um, you know, uh, ordinarily journalists um, sort of the standard for that is um, if the if an agency can convince them that the human life is in danger, um, you know, they'll hold information or potentially redact it. Um, you know, but these are based on um, uh, in some sense sort of a, a tenuous trust relationship between um, sort of uh, you know journalists and uh, and uh, intelligence agencies and sort of that obligation to try and sort of try and do the right thing um, or or try and not cause you know more harm and um, and sort of to be responsible with documents. Um, I think we saw. Um, I agree with you that this is that these um, sort of norms are, are going to be really challenged and that this the presentation of the certain documents is is sort of the first one of the first times we're really seeing kind of the the breakdown of that type of system. I think there are a lot of people who would cheer that that would say yes, exactly. You know, the report, national security reporters are corrupt because they they need continued access to their sources and so they you know uh, trade stories you know with the CIA uh, you know what well, Shane and, Harris always seemed like a shifty guy. It's to me. So shifty. Um, so I'm sure there's some people that sort of welcome that, but I, I think it's important to sort of stop and and note that this is not without consequence. You know, this is um, journalists play an especially important role in national security. It's sort of where that you know fourth estate is is it's most challenging because of the, the secrecy at play and sort of the, the need for an adversarial role to the government. Um, and at the same time, the stakes are highest uh, sort of for, for genuine consequences. Um, so I, I am nervous for sort of the, the future of national security reporting in the age of mass leaks. Yeah. Don't screw it up, Shane. That's uh, just about to say there's no pressure here. Just place it all on you. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you want me on that wall. We do. Look, if I ever <laughs> decide to just go bananas and leak huge quantities of classified documents in some future life in the government, I would come straight to you, Shane. Oh, Nobody good. else. You're I'm, the only person I I'm would so trust. I'm so glad we have that on tape. serious <laughs> federal <laughs> offenses. Um, Something tells me now you're not going to do that. Oh. Oh Only time will tell. All right. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'm going to go first. Uh, I frequently come to you with movie recommendations that I think uh, would be interesting to the audience. And I've got another one. Um, have you guys heard of this new movie, Hell or High Water? Oh, it is so great. It's so good. Not a national security link, though. Unless you think bank thing. robbers are a national here's security thing, threat. Though, what I was going to say um, is... Uh, well, first, it's also by the writer of Sicario, which I mentioned on the show before, um, Taylor Sheridan. But I like it because, like, if you're like listening to this podcast, you're probably like into like Law and Order, cops and robbers story. This is just an awesome cops and robbers story. Yes, it is. It was so surprising. I walked into it not knowing hardly anything at all. Um, Chris Pine and Ben Foster play these brothers who are on a bank robbery heist, and the movie is essentially about that and why they're doing it and jeff bridges who plays the about to days from retirement texas ranger who's out out to get him it's great it's so so entertaining i I also just love that it is a western cops and robbers story starring a texas ranger who is a big old potbellied dude driving a pickup truck he's a mess in this movie yeah he's just tired all the characters are so complex and interesting and well played and you know it was, and it was a beautiful movie. Yeah, the landscape, shot. the everything about yeah. it. Definitely and it reminds us that Chris Pine, not just a pretty face, by the way. I know, but also also a pretty, face. but also totally uh, yes, pretty yes. Face. Let's not forget he's a pretty forget face. Uh, all right, who would like to share the next object? I will go next because mine is pretty brief. Um, so, uh, and I'll only sort of obliquely reference to it. But my object lesson is a Wittis family Twitter smackdown. Um, Tammy's laughing right now. I didn't know um, you were going to do that. Uh, <laughs> an, an unfortunate individual was foolish enough to reference. I will leave him unnamed. Because he unnamed was so unfortunate. Only because I feel like it's like, you know, justice has been served. Um, was foolish enough to criticize a piece that Ben and I wrote um, and only reference Ben. And, um, of course, uh, dropping uh, me as the author. I believe you were the first author of that piece. That's true. Although, to be fair, we do just go alphabetically, but neither here nor there. And not uh, still justified on the moral grounds. Um, And she wrote most of it. Uh, at any rate, um, I, uh, you know, look, uh, we, I think a lot about sort of um, promoting women in, in the workplace and, and feminism and equality and having a voice in national security stuff. Um, and uh, 
you know, I just a big heart eyed emoji to um, to my boss, Ben Widges, for saying, how dare you? And then just whenever Ben was like kind of getting over it, Tammy <laughs> going in for the jugular. I have to say by the end of it, I legitimately felt bad for this person. <sighs> I didn't. You know what? I got close, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't feel bad because I think he still didn't he he still didn't understand what he had done wrong in not acknowledging your role. Okay, maybe he was just fixated on Ben at the outset, but once it was pointed out to him, he just couldn't bring himself to back down. And that kind of stubbornness when someone points out to you that you're being a pig, um, to me is inexcusable. But and, and it was not excused. Y'all are um, tough. Do not meet you in a dark Twitter Do corner. not meet Tammy in a dark yeah. Twitter alley when you are engaging in the widespread practice of admitting female authors yeah. of pieces. Darn yeah. tootin'. Um, so there you go. That's my sheriff in town nice. for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow it is Texas Ranger. I yeah. love it. Excellent. I love it. Okay, well, my object, which uh, we're going to post on the on the podcast webpage, is this awesome new public service announcement by an organization that I think just came into existence called Save the Day, as in savetheday.vote. In other words, by voting, you can save the day. Okay, nice message, right? Nice public service announcement. It stars a lot of Hollywood celebrities. In fact, if you are a Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, you will particularly love this public service announcement. Um, starring some of the most awesome people from the Mar- Marvel Universe, like my personal fave, Clark Gregg. Um, but it's it's a great public service announcement because it's not just an earnest uh, uh, advocacy of, of uh, registering and voting. It's really meta. It's really self-conscious. It's sarcastic. It's funny. And it's got so many great points in it. Watch it all the way to the end. Uh, it is worth the five minutes. I'm also just like impressed like Clark Gregg is your favorite Marvel Universe guy. He is. Agent no, Coulson is awesome. That's good. But yeah. also Clark Gregg is an awesome person on Twitter. Is that true? Yeah, totally. And you should totally follow him. All right. I and and he's him. hot in kind of a nerdy way. Is he? I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page. Is he married to Jennifer Gray? Wait, the actress? Yeah. I thought From Clark, Dirty Dancing. I thought Clark Gregg was gay. I'm sorry. No, that's the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. guy. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Well, all right. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, Sorry, man. Shane. That's okay. Oh, they're both good. Yeah, they're both fine. I'll get over it. All right. <laughs> uh, that brings us to the end Shout of the show. Shout out to Shane's husband, who he loves very much. <laughs> <laughs> and watches Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. all the time. That's how I know this. I don't watch that show. Are you kidding? Season premiere was last night. Oh, my God. I'm a total addict. I oh, the nerd alert siren is his ring is going. <laughs> All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, please tweet us some questions at RATL Security. We really want to do uh, a listener uh, questions and answer segment uh, coming up. So please hit us up on Twitter at RATL Security with your questions about anything we're talking about on the show or uh, issues in the news or whatever else you'd like us to talk about. When you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out a lot. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. Our music was performed this week by Edward Snowden and the Snowcaps. Mm. No? You should have made Ice Cap like the... Snowcap is an actual candy. It's oh. true. It's like a not what do they call a non perio? Uh, okay, if Edward Snowden was good. a candy, he would be a Necco wafer. Oh, harsh. Sheesh. That's chalky. You get at Halloween thin. that you never, ever, ever eat. Yeah. That's no. what he is. No. Our music, of course, is performed by Sophia Yan. I do not know what candy she would be. It would be something delightful, uh, delectable. Um, a little spicy. Like a high-end caramel. Yeah, like, like a, a high-end caramel. But you have to savor because if you try and chew it too quick, it'll rip your fillings out. <laughs> you have to appreciate it. That's the way it goes. And, of course, the podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell. On behalf of all of my friends, Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, somewhere in Las Vegas, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.